0: the magic and alchemy podcast where we talk about witchcraft setting intentions forgotten folklore and mythology created by tamed wild magic and alchemy is a collection of stories rituals and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers including myself kate bellew and my co-host kristen Lassenby. And welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Ballew. And I'm Kristen Lizenby. Happy New Year, Kristen. It's 2023. I cannot even process it.
1: <laughs> I know. Happy New Year. We made it.
0: Any resolutions
1: or intentions you'd like to share? hmm So many intentions, like my journal is so full of them, which I know there's always like this conversation around this time of year about like, should I set intentions or resolutions? Should I not? Mm -hmm. But as a witch, I feel like, of course, I'm going to set intentions, even if that (laughs) just means like creating a phrase or mantra that I pin above my desk that reminds me to remain curious and kind and be just a little bit witchier than I was last year. Um, but if you want specifics this year, I'd like to read more books, um, take part in some kind of past life regression, um, and go on a road trip, which probably means more trips to the mainland. Fingers crossed. Yeah. What about you? Any new year's resolutions or intentions?
0: Well, first, um, and so it is to all of yours. I love that, yes. but yeah, Thank it's you. definitely the monthly. It's the first of the month. It's it's mm-hmm. always that way. Um, yeah. But yeah, good question. I think for me, I'm just really celebrating and also integrating the lessons of my Saturn return. Saturn and Aquarius, folks, Mm -hmm. are you with me? (laughs) And also, yeah, just creating more, writing more poems, um, traveling, planning a wedding, becoming more of my authentic self each day.
1: I love that. Thanks. But also integrating the lessons of the Saturn return. I'm sending you (laughs) lots and lots of love uh, with that because I have not forgotten mine. But uh, which tip of the day, what is it?
0: <laughs> so our witch tip for today, let's talk winter altars. So what's mm-hmm. on your January altar, Kristen? After the days of Yule are over, what do you do before Imbolc arrives? Mm-hmm.
1: I just love having like all the candles on my altar this time of year because Even though the sun is getting stronger, it doesn't feel like it yet in my corner of the world. And so I'm calling in all that solar energy with the help of some fire, uh, trying to thaw out and reawaken the parts of myself that have been resting. Um, I've also been having a lot of fires in our wood stove right now because that's our only heat source. And Even though it's not always as convenient, I love having a wood stove because it's truly an opportunity to create a mini ritual each night, um, either through writing like a wish on a bay leaf um, and listening as it burns or watching the flames and like quiet meditation for some fire divination or giving like a little bit of incense or a cinnamon stick to the fire as an offering to a hearth deity or fire tending deity. Wood
0: stoves are absolutely magic.
1: Mm. They are. Not really, like,
0: good for the Brooklyn apartment, but when I go upstate, I love them. (laughs) So cozy. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, you know, I love to work with the winter crone archetype or bridged in the days leading up to Imbolc. My altar is always more simple during this time. Maybe a white candle anointed with mugwort and cedar oil that I made remind me to send you some Mm -hmm. and a small note about maybe my creative practice and also commitment to rest during these months. Then maybe I would add like a small dish of water or some lace. And I love to use this raw silk that I dyed with acorns to bring a little earth in during the cold months. But I like to tend to this altar like once a week and just check in. I definitely struggle a lot more in the city in winter. So I just try to keep things simple and supportive.
1: And listeners, I know you can't see it, but uh, Kate was showing me the other day what it looks like when you dye cloth with acorn. It's absolutely beautiful. It's like this grayish type color. I don't know if that's the right, that's how it looks to me, but it's beautiful.
0: Yeah, it's like a purple-like gray. When you dye it with the acorns, it's like obviously a brown, and then you add iron, um, like the iron, I don't even know the proper word for it, but you add that, Mm -hmm. the metal, and it's (laughs) like a true alchemy. It turns
1: purple. It's very fun. It's amazing. And I really like how you're working with like both the crone and Bridget right now because, you know, as you know, and our listeners might know as well, uh, in the days before Imbolc, that's when Brigid as Bride um, and the Caliac as like the winter witch are battling it out for the seasonal throne. And of course, we know that Bride as a representative of spring eventually wins. Uh, but as far as it goes right now, the crone still rules and she's easy to find if we want to work with her. And I know our guest today also loves The Crone as she talked about Karidwen in today's conversation. So do you want to introduce her?
0: Yes, please. So Amanda Yates Garcia is a writer, witch, and the Oracle of Los Angeles. Her work has been featured in The New York Times, The LA Times, The SF Chronicle, The London Times, CNN, Bravo, as well as a viral appearance on Fox. She has led rituals, classes, and workshops on magic and witchcraft at UCLA, UC Irvine, MOCA, the Hammer Museum, LACMA, the Getty, and many other venues. Amanda hosts monthly Moon Rituals online and the popular Between Worlds podcast, which looks at the Western mystery traditions through a mythopoetic lens. Her book, Initiated Memoir of a Witch, received a starred review from Kirkus and Publishers Weekly and has been translated into six languages.
1: We love how this conversation wove in what it means to be a witch, storytelling, the sacred guardian Medusa, magic as a birthright, and tarot. Amanda joined us from her home in Los Angeles via Zoom. Welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kristen Lisenby.
0: And I'm Kate Ballou. And today we have a very special guest with us, Amanda Yates-Garcia. Hi, Amanda. Hi.
2: So
1: happy to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. So to start things off, uh, can you share your big three in astrology with us? And then also tell us a bit about you and your work in your own words.
2: Yeah, so I am all fixed in my big three, which makes it challenging for me to get things started, but I can go deep once I get in there. So my sun is in Scorpio, and my moon is in Leo, and my rising sign is in Taurus. Um, And then as far as who I am and what my work is about, well, I... I'm um, the Oracle of Los Angeles. So I, I work on Instagram as that under that moniker. I also see clients one-on-one for divination and ritual and healing work. And I have my own podcast uh, with my friends and producer, Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs, called Between the Worlds Podcast. And that's about. We mostly focus on tarot or looking at the Western mystery traditions through a uh, literary or cultural lens, mythological lenses. And let's see, what else do I do? Oh, I lead public moon rituals, and I'm a writer. I, I have uh, I have a memoir that's out, came out in 2019, called "Initiated: Memoir of a Witch," and. I also do a lot of work in the arts, um, do public rituals and workshops and uh, speak at, at museums and other art institutions. And I would say that my work is really about re-enchantment, which is pro- probably something that most of your listeners are familiar with, at least a little bit, from Silvia Federici's work. Um, but I see re the world as about reforging the connections of intimacy and relationality between humans and the more than human world between humans and one another and also between us and the realms of consciousness the realms of spirit the realms of imagination because I feel like our culture you know western capitalist colonialism uh, authoritarianism etc has really alienated us and made us separate, made us um, disconnected from wherever we live, from our histories, from our families, from each other. And so I feel like witchcraft is the process of reconnection, which I call re-enchantment. And right now my work is really focusing as well on the idea of belonging and what it means to belong to a place, what it means to belong to each other, and w- creating a world where... We feel like we matter, like where we feel we are safe, where we feel like we add something, where we are needed and where we need each other. So I'm doing all that, but then woven through that, which is where I really feel like witchcraft comes into being, well, witchcraft is both about that re-enchantment and also about One's personal authority. So it's not, I don't see witchcraft as, as purely about relationality because I also believe that it's also about finding one's own individual agency and authority because witchcraft doesn't concede, <clears throat> witchcraft doesn't concede authority to an outside source right? It always comes from within and from, it's a mystical tradition, so it's our relationship with the divine, however we understand that to be. And so, because, again, because of our, especially because of the history of colonialism throughout the world, even in Europe, um, my lineage comes from Northern Europe, um, we've been really taught to look to outside authorities to show us what to do, how to do it, what is permissible, what isn't, um, what reality is even. And so for me, witchcraft is also very much about helping us find our own inner authority as well. And, um, reconnecting to what reality is for us. So, you know, it's a big job. Someone's got to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I love, I love that inclusion
0: of, of both belonging and enchantment. I think that that's so magical. And, and like you said, you're a professional witch, author, podcaster, ceremonial facilitator, tarot and astrology enthusiast. It's all so amazing. Like you said, someone has to do it, but how did you get here? And I imagine there were just so many twists and turns over the years.
2: Yeah, for sure. There were a lot of twists and turns. It's actually kind of a long story. I will try and keep it short here. (laughs) Um, But if people are interested in going deeper in my book, Initiated, which is a memoir, and I think we'll talk about that probably, I go into deep detail about all of that. Mm -hmm. But basically, I started off as a dancer, contemporary dancer. And then from there, I went into the arts. Um, But also, you know, my mother was a witch. I I was brought up practicing witchcraft, but towards the end of my teens and my early 20s, I kind of rejected the religion of my family, as so many people do, I think. And then went into the arts. And while I was in the arts... I kind of made that my religion and made that my practice. Um, But I also made a lot of really angry art, like in grad school, you know, just kind of against the world, against capitalism, against patriarchy, against white supremacy, whatever. Um, But then when I got out of grad school, I, I started to think more deeply about what I was doing there and, started to feel like I didn't just want to be against the world. It's really easy to say, you know, what other people are doing wrong and point out how it's wrong, but I felt like in order to make the leap into being a mature artist or a more powerful one that I had to say what I was for and I had to create the world that I wanted to live in rather than just saying... The world is wrong, now somebody else fix it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So so I I started to think about what kind of world I wanted to live in. And I realized that I wanted to live in um, an enchanted world, a magical world, a world where women, queer folks have, you know, power and um, where the imagination and the sacred have a central place in the culture. And where we celebrate uh, the more than human world, uh, animal worlds, plant worlds. And so that led me back to witchcraft because that is really kind of the fundamental um, thesis, I would say, of witchcraft. And so I started to do public performances and rituals um, in the art world. And then, you know, people just started asking me to do them privately and so my practice really grew from there Um, people just were asking me to do it which I think is a really good indicator of when you're ready to you know a lot of people want to be make their living as witches or diviners or astrologers and usually know when that path is opening for you when people start asking you to do it um, but simultaneously I was also, you know, working in education. I was working in museums, I was working in educational administration, I was teaching um college, I was teaching in elementary schools. And um there were a lot of things that I really didn't like about it. I felt really exploited. And so in this moment of desperation, I did this spell where I basically got down on my knees and asked the goddess like to help me because I really didn't I felt really trapped and really scared and I said you know if you show me the path forward here like I will dedicate my life to you and then I was working at that time as an educational administrator for like just in this, it was so miserable. I was just in front of a computer like nine hours a day. I sat in traffic like two hours a day, commuting. There were no windows. It was really for the the projects that we were working on were not things that I agreed with politically. And so then like a week or two later, a relative sent me money out of the blue about, well, I gave half of it to my partner at the time, but so I had $5,000. And then I got laid off, like, immediately from my work, which was such a blessing, (laughs) and I got to collect unemployment. So then I said, wow, (laughs) here's my answer. So I was like, well, I'm just going to do exactly what I want to do until the money runs out and then when the money runs out i'll get a job again and then uh, the money never ran out it's like 10 years later and here i am the oracle of los angeles yes. <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> that's amazing
2: ask for a door
0: find a door
2: yeah totally it was really unexpected i mean there were a lot of ways in which um you know, like, I have had privileges in the fact that, for instance, I had family members who could send me money, but I, I didn't expect that to happen. Like, I hadn't asked for it or anything, and uh, I I didn't really talk to this relative very often. Um, but I also think that no matter, you know, what your situation, that there there is a way. There has to be a way. There has to be a path forward. If you can't find it, it's not your fault, but because I couldn't find it for many years. But eventually when I did, I think it had to do with um, going back to that idea of, of readiness, of um, of readiness to believe in myself in a way that I hadn't before, that it was had been something that I really struggled with. Um, and then finally, kind of touching down on the the truth of who I was and and what I wanted. Because it's really, I mean, you know, oftentimes people say that witchcraft is about intention, and it is, but it's often the hardest thing is just to figure out what your intentions really are and to have this be really in alignment with what you actually want. So often our intentions are what we think we should want or... We don't believe that we can actually have what we want, so we won't say. Um, So, yeah, I feel like that, just getting clear on that. I just, I knew that I needed to get out of there and that I wanted to make um, magic and enchantment central to my life. And then the possibilities emerged.
0: What's well, so difficult to take that leap when you don't have anything to, like, model it after, you know, like, the creativity that it takes to, like, dream up that world and, and to believe in yourself is really, really important and hard to get the brain around,
2: you know? Totally. And then also, you know, my mom was a practicing witch and also was fairly public in a small way in our community, right? So she was doing a lot of work for people. Um, You know, as kind of like sitting at their bedside as they were dying, like blessing newborn children, like holding marriage ceremonies, holding monthly moon rituals and things like that. But my mom, for a lot of reasons I won't go into, but she has a hard time like charging money um, for anything. And so I felt like she was kind of exploited when I was growing up, you know, she was always really busy and kind of always, um, I would say kind of working beyond her boundaries in a way, like there was just a lot of work to be done that she wasn't getting compensated for. And then that was also affecting me as a child because she was out doing that stuff while I was kind of like, you know, there on my own. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I, that was one of the reasons why I rejected that path as a child because I was like, I see what the cost is for my mom, and I don't really want to follow that path, just, you know, being broke and um, exhausted. <laughs> and, and, um, so I, I didn't see that there was a path. I mean, I never thought that I could support myself as, a witch, let alone make, you know, a stable, good income. Um, But it turns out that it is is possible. I think um, there are so many things that are possible that we don't realize just because we have this paradigm that tells us this is what is available to you. This is what is acceptable. This is how you have to do things. And I feel like magic really helps us Um, open our eyes to see there are more pathways available to us than we realized before and that we also have the power to make them happen
1: Like you said, you go into detail about so much of your life in your book, Initiated uh, Memoir of a Witch. And something I really appreciated about this book uh, is the vulnerability and your openness to be seen, which is something that our listeners and fellow witches ask about all the time. So, what were some of the challenges you experienced when it came to being seen and sharing your story? Or is it something you wish you would have done sooner?
2: Well, I never worried about being seen as a witch. That's something that um, is a blessing, I think, for me. And also, you know, I come from California, so um, it's just more acceptable. You know, I'm in coastal California. Like, there are a lot of witches so it it didn't feel scary to me to do that and I know other people don't have that same situation but you know as a writer well basically a lot a lot of the early part of the work or about of the book is you know I I talk a lot about my experience in sex work and that was what I was doing to Pay my way through my the earlier part of my life, my my undergrad and grad not grad school, but just in my undergrad. Um, and I didn't want to talk about that. I hadn't wanted to talk about that. I went to grad school for writing, and I did not want to talk about that because my experience in doing that work was that it just defined me as a person, not because I wanted it to, but because. Um, If anybody found out that I did that work, that that would really define who I was to them. And I also didn't want that to to define me as a writer because I was worried that people would be like, oh, that's what she wants to talk about. And I didn't want to talk about it because for me, it was very traumatic. And I'm not saying that it is for everybody, but for me, it really was. And yet, it kept coming, like whenever I would try and write about something else, it would it would keep coming up, you know, it keep coming to the front. And finally I was like, fine, <laughs> I will write about it. But, um, I wasn't, I I felt like I had to understand what the connection was between that work and also a bunch of other challenges that I'd had early in my life. You know, I'm, I'm, Quite, I'm quite dyslexic. I had ADHD. There were a series of traumas in my family. My family was quite broken for many generations. Um, And yet for me, I feel like witches are often come from trauma. They come from broken families. They come from Places of neurodivergence, you know, uh, queer folks who are are very marginalized in our culture are often very attracted to witchcraft. And the reason for that is because witchcraft or, you know, areas of divergence allow you to see things about our culture that other people don't have the pressure to see. It's true for everyone, right? Like, we live in a very violent, troubling culture, but most people are, you know, fully indoctrinated in that culture. But I feel like when there's something different about you, there's something odd about you, or you've had experiences that are kind of outside the norm, then you get pushed into the liminal, which is where witchcraft happens, and you can see things that other people can't really see. And that is really, for me, p- part of what witchcraft is. I'm not saying that you have to have a trauma <laughs> to be a witch, um, and also just living in our culture is traumatizing enough, but I do think that, it, that having things that really challenge you is well, that's what my book is really about, these initiations and the way that life initiates you. And and the metaphor that I use in my book is about being pulled into the underworld against your will, which is very much the the paradigm of Persephone, who, you know, is this maiden of the spring and she's in the fields, like gathering flowers with her friends, and then the Lord of the Underworld bursts up through the ground and drags her down into. Hell essentially drags her down into the darkness. And she has to find her way back. And for me, that idea is that you get dragged down into the darkness, and it's very dangerous and it's very real. You know, like for me, the dangers that I was encountering with sex work or with many of my experiences as a a young person were truly dangerous. And I might not have survived them. And so it's not just like a metaphor or hypothetical. Um, but if you do find your way back, if you do find your way out of that underworld, then you know the way. You have a medicine. You have a light that that you can help. You can use to help other people as well, because other people help me. You know, there were guides who lit my torch. There were, you know, writers, artists, other witches who helped guide me out. And so I feel like we're just like passing that fire along in witchcraft. And so, you know, I really wasn't interested in writing a how-to book because there's so many how-to books out there that are really great. And um, I didn't feel like I needed to, to add one to that canon um, and besides, you can't really learn witchcraft from a book. Like people kind of think like, if I just get this next book, you know, they have like a thousand books that they're like, this one's really going to do it. But witchcraft is like learning to play the guitar. Like you you can't really just read a book and know how to play the guitar. It's really muscle memory. It's really practice. So, you know, just reading one book and really going, through, you know, really doing the things is going to be really helpful for you more than just reading a thousand books but also getting a teacher helps but so i i really in the book wanted to talk more about what witchcraft means to me and how it shows up in people's lives as a lived experience because many discussions of witchcraft stay in a fairly basic kind of arbitrary territory like use a pink candle for a love spell and I was like, okay, but why? And how does this matter? And and what happens when you do this? And um what is it connected to as far as as like the deep spirituality of life? You know, I, I felt like I wanted to show how witchcraft is real. And a lot of the people who follow my work are not people who can just accept that you burn a pink candle and like it changes your life (laughs) they they need more than that and they need like a greater connection and so I wanted to offer that and then I also wanted to tell a good story (laughs) so I I wanted I wanted the work to be something that you would feel like you had to you know find out what happened like you're kind of dragged (laughs) you're kind of like grasped and pulled through the labyrinth um, with the narrative structure so uh those were all the things that I was thinking about in terms of of writing the book and as far as whether or not I wish I would have done it sooner I feel like we do things when we're ready I wish that I would have written it when I was 21 but you know I didn't have the capacity to do it then So I did it when I was, when I did. So I know that Medusa makes an
0: appearance in your writing and we, we really love Medusa on this podcast. So I would love for you to talk about your relationship with her and and how you view her, not as a monster, but as, as a guardian.
2: Yeah. So, well, first of all, her name means guardian, and if you go to Southern Europe, like for instance in Italy, you'll see the Medusa's head, like as a guardian many doorways. You know, so um, she's also used as a as a you know a, a ward against evil in many places. Um, she appeared to me as a child. during a time when I was very vulnerable and in a lot of danger and I was scared of her and she kind of kept reappearing to me throughout my life, kind of just in visions. And then when I was in my twenties, like early twenties, like 21 or something, I was in undergrad and I, I started studying the French feminists and I came across the work of Helen Sexuse who wrote this very famous essay called The Laugh of Medusa. I love her so much. <laughs> I love her so much. <laughs> <laughs> and she and the Ecriture Feminine, which was, you know, which is like the feminine writing. And it just liberated something in me. It it was it the the essay is saying, you know, that Medusa had been written about from the perspective of her um, male antagonists, essentially, like the people who decapitated her, the people who were seeking to destroy her. And Sixus was saying from her perspective, like she is powerful. She is beautiful. And because of course, you know, Medusa was transformed into a monster for the sin, quote unquote, of being uh raped in the temple of Poseidon, and she was a priestess. And then as punishment for this great transgression, uh, she's transformed into a monster who whenever you know men look at her, they're turned to stone, and then she has to walk around her lair looking at the faces of all these men who are like grimacing at her her horrible terrifying face and for me that very much resonated because you know especially because I was working in you know the sex industry when I was that age you know I was very you know you're very young usually when you start working in that field and it's extremely for me it was extremely stressful because our culture has a lot of, um, unresolved and repressed, uh, fear, uh, around sexuality. And, um, from my experience, and this is a very controversial opinion, um, because I'm like pro sex worker for sure. And want sex workers to be safe and happy and like, celebrate it sorry you can hear my cats like doing nefarious deeds <laughs> <at the door. laughs> but um I th- my experience was that most of the women that I was working with had experienced a great deal of trauma in their life and specifically sexual trauma and that's how they ended up in that situation and that they we're, we're trying to find their way to re-empower themselves, but because often we begin that work when we're so young, like, I just feel like most of us aren't really that equipped at, like, 18, 19 years old to deal with all of the, the major issues that, like, these, you know, older men or the entire culture of men are, especially, like, people who run the the clubs or whatever are um, you know powerful wealthy manipulative controlling people a lot of the time not always but often and so to put to be in that situation when you're like a plucky you know fiery adventurous young person um, can be really, dangerous and difficult so for me with medusa i felt like it was a way of reclaiming my true beauty and my true power and my true fierceness and ferocity and ability to protect myself um that that she was bringing and lately i've been thinking too a lot about the the deities of witchcraft or the saints of witchcraft and you know, Medusa, the devil, Hecate, um, you know, the horned god. Like, all these, like, fearsome beings are often uh, lauded in witchcraft. And what you experience when you relate to them is this thrill of power. And I don't mean that, like... Um, like a CEO has power. I mean it more like if you're standing near a tiger or a crocodile or like a buffalo, you know, you should feel fear because they are powerful, but they're also extremely beautiful. And like you have to approach them with a great deal of respect, but they have a majesty about them. And it. Is a mirror of our own internal fearsome powers as well, and um, so there is a kind of awe that we can regain for the parts of ourselves that have been through great difficulty by, you know, tapping into the vein of this, these powerful forces. So I feel like that's really what I had come to with medusa and i'm also learning of her softer side now so (laughs) you know you never really get to the bottom of a deity they're always um yielding
1: more and more that's one of our favorite things i think is to reframe these goddesses these dark goddesses medusa Um, even Persephone in some cases, but kind of like just giving them another version of their story. You know, we know, we know the main one. We've heard it our whole lives, but there's definitely more to it. There's, you know, that's just one angle. It goes really deep.
2: Yeah. I mean, with. With Medusa, especially, you know, when I was first began to study her from a more theoretical perspective with, you know, Helen Sixers' work, I was also reading a lot um, of Laura Mulvey at the time, who was a, a film critic who came up with the concept of the male gaze and how that gaze controls now my my perspective on um you know feminism has really changed over the years and obviously for I think for very good reason at that time uh I was extremely angry (laughs) at men in general like I really was um pretty like I I just couldn't really conceive of them even as human because of the experiences that I'd had. Like they just, they just seemed like villains to me. (laughs) Um, And I also felt very controlled by the male gaze. Um, But I also, I've also come to understand that now as um, really the controlling gaze of colonialism and hegemony and powers of oppression that, that affect everyone, all genders, um, even the people who in theory have power are essentially tormented by colonialist forms of authority. And so Medusa's like this ward against that. You know, she freezes that and gives us an opportunity to find our own power within. And I love too how the myth goes that from a drop of Medusa's blood, the Pegasus is born, you know, she Mm -hmm. was decapitated and then her blood fell from her skull as, you know, Perseus is carrying her away. But um, the idea that like beauty comes from this um, fearsomeness and I feel like embedded in myths are um, medicines, ways of dealing with The challenges that our culture presents to us, and also what I really love is that in mythology, in the arts, in the magical arts, the enchanted arts, these have been places, little pockets, little hideaways where magic has lived, has 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 incubated over centuries. And so, even though, of course, Medusa's story was written by the winners, quote-unquote, as my high school history teacher would have said, um, the the sort of virus of witchcraft, power, um, connectedness, and enchantment lives in that myth. And... No matter how the hegemonic powers try and make it um, like a hammer <laughs> to to destroy the the people who you know, they're after like the, the the vulnerable folks, like the medicine is still there. You can always pull it out, which I just delight in.
0: I wrote down this um, quote from your essay, Um, is it Aia? Is that how you pronounce
2: that? Aia, Aia,
0: yeah. From the island of Aia, the witch in myth and religion, and that's in Tashin's witchcraft book, but you wrote, "...mythological witches travel between the worlds. In high culture, they might appear as goddesses. In patriarchal religions, witches often appear as monsters." And though the witches of myth are not easy to pin down, we know where to find them. Search the remote, wild places, places of isolation and enchantment. I love that passage so much and just wanted to weave it in because of the myth. And I know we've talked a little bit about some of the mythological figures of witchcraft, but do you have a favorite or one that you're working with right now?
2: I'm super obsessed with Kerjwin right now, who is a Celtic hag. And she is kind of a goddess, kind of a mortal witch. You know, there, it's uncertain, you know, it varies depending on the myth that you're hearing. But one of the ways in which I'm really inspired by her is that she's the keeper of the cauldron of Awen, which is um, this substance of the fairy world. You know, it's the other world. It's literally the substance that makes up the other world and the fairy world. And she boils it in this cauldron and it is the source of inspiration, right? It's this, um, the elixir of knowledge, of divine inspiration. And there's a very long myth that I won't go into too much right now (laughs) about how um, she, this young man who eventually becomes a bard Taliesin through um, getting drops, three drops of this elixir on his thumb and putting his thumb in his mouth um, becomes this great bard becomes this great uh, poet and um, keeper of knowledge, wisdom holder, a uh, prophet of his time. And he does this in this myth through moving through a series of animal bodies that Caredwin essentially forces him into because she's gonna gobble him up and punish him and eat him. And so eventually she does eat him, and then she gives birth to him. And you know, long story. But I love it because Caradwin is like an initiator. She's initiator of shapeshifting, and through in his encounter with her, Taliesin's encounter with her, he is forced to to move into the ontology, to the reality of all these different beings. He becomes a sparrow. He becomes a a fish. She becomes a grain of wheat. You know, he 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 moves through the animal and vegetable kingdoms. And that is how he becomes a prophet through experiencing other ways of being. And so I see Caradocian as this initiator, and I also feel like the Hag often appears as an initiator. So she is this scary figure. You know, maybe she lives in a spooky dwelling in the woods, or she's this old woman, scraggly hair, and a wart on her nose. And yet, she is the one who holds the cauldron of Owen, of inspiration, of this connection to the other world. And in our encounter with her, we are able to shapeshift and we are able to see into other realms. And so, I'm really excited by her because this capacity to shapeshift or this initiation into the capacity to shapeshift offers us... Uh, pathways out of the capitalist ontology, which basically says there is one reality and there is no escape. You know, our way is the only way. You know that whole phrase, like it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism, because essentially the the capitalist paradigm is saying this is it. You know, I think Margaret Thatcher, Mar- Margaret Thatcher said that as well. Like, there is no other way and there are infinite other ways but we can't see into them if we if we hold on to our the position of our ego as like formed by the culture that we live in we have to be able to shapeshift into other beings and hop onto other trains of perception and so i feel like she's an initiator and allows us to do that
1: I love her and I also feel like she teaches us to like let go when we need to you know like when she's when she's chasing Taliesin and he keeps changing and changing like he's not even thinking about what he was he's just ready for the next thing and so I think she's wonderful at um, helping us let go of things as well.
2: Yeah and then I think in the myth you know she devours him right Mm -hmm. as a grain of wheat but then she also gives birth to him so it's not just that she um inspires him but she actually creates him from her own body which i i just love i just think it's so great
1: you host a podcast called Between the Worlds that explores tarot and magic and community. And on the Instagram page for Between the Worlds, the byline describes it as Tarot Grad School Without the Debt, which is amazing. Uh, But could you talk about the name Between the Worlds and what it means to you? It feels very liminal. It
2: is exactly liminal. So as... Most of your listeners will probably be aware. Okay, so we're recording this around Halloween, and um, or known by witches often as Samhain, and it's said that at this time of year, the veil between the worlds becomes thin, and of course, what that means is. The veil between ontologies becomes thin, as we've already been discussing. The veil between realities becomes thin. And also, specifically, originally, I think that was referring to the veil between ordinary reality that we're experiencing every day and the realms of fairy, the fairy realms. And fairy realms at least in the, you know, Britonic tradition that I follow um, are not just the realms of like little spirits like Tinkerbell, you know, it's also the realm of the ancestors, the realm of the elemental beings, the realm of the old ones, um, the, the, the voices of, of power, the spirits that permeate the earth, potentially permeate the entire universe. And so when the veil between our world and that world becomes thin, as we know, um, you know, in, in fairy mythology, like you can you can enter into the fairy world at any time. Like maybe you go through a cave or you find yourself in a circle, flowers in the woods, or, you know, you meet a stranger upon the road and you're brought into the realms of fairy. In other words, that you're brought into the, the dream world, the other world, where anything is possible. And, you know, there's a long history of, especially, in, in Northern Europe, of which is as um, hedge dwellers and edge dwellers. So the hedge was the boundary between civilization being that which was controlled by the state or by the capitalist classes or by the church who, you know, enclosed the land. And made it so that the peasants, the folk people, couldn't have access to the things that they needed for their survival. And then they would force the peasants then to like, work on their land or to give them all their resources in order to be able to survive by living within this dwelling, within the hedges. And on the other side of the hedges was the wild spaces, Was the, were the realms that were not controlled By the state or by civilizing forces. And so to be a walker between the worlds is to be someone who is able to move back and forth between the realms of the wild, the uncivilized, the uncontrolled, the uncontrollable, and the reality that we might consider as quote unquote ordinary that we are existing in every day. Um, That is essentially a capitalist, colonialist reality. So I felt excited about, you know, that phrase. But also, um, it's a phrase that's used at the beginning of many witches' rituals when you finish casting a circle and calling in the four directions and calling in whatever deities you work with. And then you ring a bell three times and you say, our circle is cast and we are between the worlds meaning that this is a space of magic. And so I wanted to create that in our podcast. And, um, but we don't, you know, the high priestess in tarot goes, travels is a traveler between the worlds. And that's what it means to be a witch, right? To have the spirit flight where you can move between these realms. But she doesn't just, or they don't just, um, go into the other world as a hobby. <laughs> you know, it's not just for um shits and giggles, as it were. They are looking to bring back medicine for their people, right? They're they are looking to find something that is helpful, find something that is an elixir towards re-enchantment. Um, so, or maybe to find some kind of a weapon that can erode capitalist colonialism from the inside when they bring it back into the walls of the castle. And that it maybe starts to infect, um, the other people there that they start to realize, you know, we can dismantle this. We have access to magic and we have access to you know our birthright. So um yeah, that's what I was calling up in between the
1: worlds the title. Well, speaking of our birthrights, I've heard you say before that magic is our birthright. So let's talk about that. Why is magic our birthright and how can we claim it?
2: Well, so I think, as I've mentioned a few times before already, um, I want to go back to this word ontology, which, which basically means the reality that we live in and how there are different realities. And magic, witchcraft itself, is an ontology. It's a way of viewing the world. It's not just a way of viewing the world. It's a way of living in the world. It's a kind of reality, Magic for me, witchcraft for me, is the belief that the universe is made of poetry and then acting on that belief. Or or more like the, the reality that the universe is made of poetry and then the ability to live as if that is true. And what I mean by that is... A reality of interconnectedness between all things, between this web of life, or what the witches call the web of the weird. And that's not just um, between objects, it's between subjects, right? If it's an animist worldview where, um, you know, we as individuals are not just individuals, there are also beings who are living inside of us. And we are permeable, right? Water is passing through us. Um, vegetable matter is passing through us and passing into the earth again. Our breath is moving through us and moving back out again. We're breathing with the trees. Um, we are connecting also with the past, with the ancestral realms, with our, with the future. Um, and also with the realms of the imagination. So, uh, we're connecting with, uh, our associations with the dream world, with the collective unconscious, and that is the reality of, of witchcraft. That is the reality of magic. And so to claim that as our birthright is to say that reality is ours. That that is that is to have something be a reality means that it does exist. And our culture is determined to prevent us from seeing that, right? It's, it's again, it's going back to this idea of saying, the only way is through capitalism. You must have a job. You must value yourself based on how much capital you produce. You must have certain ambitions and you must abandon others. Uh, like, The thing that is most valuable in capitalist culture is capitalism, is capital, is wealth, and nothing else matters. So if you have a really rich dream life, that doesn't matter. Like, as long as you can fit it in with your work schedule, like, cool, but otherwise, no. But... When I say magic is your birthright, when I say witchcraft is your birthright, it's about that return to a different system of values and a different way of viewing and being in the world that actually has the power to unravel the ontologies of capitalism. And that is why it doesn't want us to know that it exists. If it wasn't powerful, it wouldn't care, right? But it is constantly trying to make you forget that there are other ways of being, that there are other ways of doing things, that we can have an interconnected world. That the but the world is already interconnected. When I say reenchantment, that's actually a misnomer because the world is already enchanted. What we're re-enchanting is our understanding of it. What we're doing is we're reconnecting ourselves. Uh, in our imagination to the web of life but we never lost that to begin with that part is the delusion so yeah that's what I mean by magic is our birthright and and what advice
0: do you have for listeners who are maybe just new to this world or or looking to um, dip a toe into, into this web or water of enchantment and aren't sure where to start
2: hmm well, I think, you know, witchcraft is a romance between yourself and the world. And so the more you can treat it as a real relationship, the more it's going to offer you and the more beautiful it becomes. So the most important thing about witchcraft is that you truly do listen to your imagination and that you tr- that you truly do feel it, that you become embodied. That you allow the magic to percolate through your body. And so that requires a kind of slowness. So whatever ritual you're doing, like if you, you know, see a meme on the internet that, like I said, is like, use a pink candle for love. Sure. But the point is not the pink candle. It's the relationship that you have to what you're doing. It's the feeling of enchantment. And that has to do with being able to, you know, as Dion Fortune says, shift consciousness at will. Shift into a, a magical, enchanted state of mind, which is a feeling of um, fomenting power and imagination, like the elixir in that cauldron of Karadwen. And and that takes constantly returning to your heart, constantly returning to your imagination. so. I suppose the simplest tip that I can give you is when you are working your magic, truly imagine whatever it is that you are calling into being. Let yourself see it. Let yourself feel it. And then imagine that you are interpenetrated by this web Of being that goes out into all directions, into all dimensions, into all worlds, and then send your intention through that web, see the web and send your intention through that web. This sounds kind of obvious. You'll hear it said a lot in in witchcraft, like your intention, use your imagination, visualize what you want but i think what people aren't understanding about that is that it it's it's about finding the power of that reality within yourself and and like kind of leaning into that note as if it's you know if it's music it's it's um it's about harmonizing with that note within your being and so Witchcraft, you know, the beauty of witchcraft, or I guess the the trouble with witchcraft is that it's really um, about practice. And then also the beauty of witchcraft is also that it's about practice. But I can say these things, but the reason that I can say them is because I've practiced it and I know how hard it is to do. So it seems like a good idea to do, you know, to like, sure, resonate, visualize, imagine. But it's actually really hard. It's really hard for me, like, to get myself into that state, to have the tools that are necessary to find my way into a place where I'm in kind of that trance state. It just takes a lot of practice. But, you know, it's also, again, with the guitar analogy, like, it's better to practice guitar once a week than to never practice. But also, like, if you really want to get good at it, the trouble is you really do have to practice. You can't, you know, it's not just something you can do occasionally if you want to be a virtuoso guitar player, right? Like, it's just mm-hmm. not going to work. But, <laughs> but, but if, what you want out of playing guitar is just to be able to enjoy it, like around the campfire, then, you know, you know, do what brings you pleasure. Like do what brings you pleasure. You don't have to make a living out of it. You know, like it can just be something that adds beauty to your life and that's good enough. Mostly it's really just about returning to your true sense of value and way of being in the world. And you'll learn more as you go and your relationship to it will deepen as you go but it's really important to trust yourself and in fact it is a tool that can help you do that
1: i think that's such a beautiful reminder too that witchcraft is a practice and your craft is a practice and you have to keep working on it if you want to see where it can go um and I think so often we think, oh, we'll read all these books and listen to all these podcasts and all these things. But you know, you actually have to do the magic. You actually have to do the ritual um, again and again many times. So I think that's a beautiful reminder.
2: Yeah. I mean, it feels so satisfying to listen to a podcast and have someone tell you what to do. In fact, you literally <laughs> get a dopamine hit, right? From reading and mm-hmm. you're like, this is how you do it. <laughs> and your body's like inject, pa ching But um, <laughs> but really like it's it's better to practice like one very simple meditation technique like mm-hmm. 10 times than it is to listen to 10 different podcasts except for our podcast yeah, listen <laughs> <Okay>. to this <laughs> <laughs>
0: I know whenever I'm teaching writing classes, I'm like, okay, let's get the, the sad part for all of you out of the way. To be a writer, you have to write.
2: <laughs> I know, it's so sad. It's so sad. It's so painful. But it's like, butt <laughs> on seat, but on seat. Like when I was writing initiated, uh, what a miserable slog. Like I would just like sit in the library For like eight hours, I had a deadline and it would just be like pulling teeth. It was so Mm. excruciating. And if I didn't have a deadline, I would be like, I'm not doing this. (laughs) I mean, at least for the first draft. I mean, I love to rewrite, but the first draft is... Just excruciatingly painful because it's like pulling something from nothing. It's literally wringing blood from a stone. Like,
0: yes. you have
2: to create it out of nothing, and that is costly. It's just costly. Blood, and sweat,
0: tears.
2: Blood, sweat, tears. Then once you have something, it's like, oh, I can do something with this. I've got, you know, I've got stuff to work with here. Then but it's like a game. You can kind of move yeah. kind of everything
0: around. But <laughs> yeah. Kristen and I have sent so many voice notes to each other. Like, we're not, I'm not writing this. I cannot do it. <laughs> I
2: know. I know, I know. It's like, how do you do this? It is it is truly like moving a mountain of rice with a, you know, tweezers, you know, fairy tale task. But we all return to it again and again and again because
0: we just have to, like we have no other choice. Like this mm-hmm. is this is the thing and the work of it.
2: Well, I tell my clients that all the time because I tend to you know, draw, attract like people who are in creative fields are often the people who um, show up as my client base. And like one thing that I've learned from working with so many creative people, so many artists of various sorts is like, they're often, they're like, should I just quit this and do something else? And I'm like, okay, here's the bad news. You can't quit. Even if you do quit on your deathbed, you'll be thinking, oh, maybe I should just write that book, actually. Like, it's not going to leave you. You're Mm -hmm. always going to feel like you should do it. You're never going to have peace, right? Like, you can be like, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to choose another field. But Mm -hmm. it's not going to leave you alone. It's going to haunt you. So you might as well just keep doing it. And it's like, that sucks. But that's the reality. It's like, life's not fair. (laughs) And um
0: letters to a young poet by rilke there's that exchange between the young writer and rilke asking advice and the young writer says exactly that and rilke's like if you can do anything else go do it but if it calls to you like you must and you must keep doing it even when it's hard you know because it's your soul's calling
2: yeah that's that's it oh my gosh rilke is one of my saints I want to make I want to put an image of him on a candle and just have him on my mantle because I yes. love him so much.
1: <laughs> so, Amanda, we are running out of time, but before we go, can you share what upcoming projects you're excited about right now and also where listeners can find your work?
2: Yeah, so um you can find me on Instagram at Oracle of LA, but what I really suggest that you do is join my Substack. Um you can, you can just find that on my Instagram or on my um, website, which is oracleoflosangeles.com. Uh, you can also listen to my podcast, Between the Worlds. We'd love to have you there and join one of my moon ceremonies. I have them every full moon. Or you could get a one-on-one session with me, which you can, if you're looking for some clarity with some divination or you have a ritual that you want to do um, for whatever purpose— or you have some healing work you want to do we can do that one on one which you can also book through my website oracleoflosangeles.com and you can find me on instagram at oracle of light. also buy my book initiated of a witch um and discover how also you are truly a witch so that's me
0: Thank you so much, Amanda, and listeners for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kate Ballou and Kristen Lisenby. You can find us online at k8ballou and at eastandalchemy. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcasttamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild
1: on their Instagram at Tamed Wild or on the blog TamedWild.com. Tune into next week's episode for another magical conversation. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be for something better. Until next time.